Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. We're, uh, we're sitting here just... Keep this in the back of your mind while you listen to this episode. We're discussing why uh, why a woman is topless, but a man is shirtless. And why you never say a topless man or a shirtless woman. Ben, share your theory. If you said a shirtless woman, she could still be wearing a bra. Yeah, that's good. It was killing me. Uh, joined by Ben Wallace, who you just heard from there. And uh, Ben is finally, the writer Ben Wallace, he's finally written something worthy of us. <laughs> Hundreds of articles that just not worthy of us. And finally, he's done it. I'm honored. Is, is that what, when you set out, you wanted to land on this show? I mean, it took me a lot of years. But <laughs> like I'm a here. career. I'm here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to lay out for people kind of what your, you know, your, uh, I don't know, like, like how, how, what, when people say, like, what do you write about? It's hard because you're a generalist, long-form magazine yeah, writer. Yeah, I'm mostly a magazine writer, general interest, write about everything from, you know, neo-Nazis to the media business to treasure hunts. Uh, wrote a book about wine. Yeah, yeah, tell people about that real quick. I find myself telling people about that book all the time. All right. So I wrote a book about the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold, which was a supposedly a 1787 Bordeaux, red Bordeaux that had belonged to Thomas Jefferson and was discovered in a bricked up cellar in Paris in the mid 80s. 
and then sold for this record price to the Forbes family, as in Malcolm Forbes, who started Forbes magazine. And um, But then the sort of questions began, was it really Thomas Jefferson's? Was it really hidden in the cellar for 200 years? And was the guy who found it, it was this German collector named Hardy Rodenstock, on the up and up, or was he a con man? And so the book follows that mystery. Uh, and just to cut to it. I don't want to give away the ending. <laughs> <laughs> People got to buy it to find out. That, one of the things I learned in that book that was most interesting to me uh, was that, I mean, besides the story about the wine, there's a thing I didn't realize. The, the, the book has a lot to do with, like, th- there's a part of the book where Ben needs to explain kind of how wine became a, a mainstream, like Wall Street, dick swinging kind of thing, right? Yep. And it got into the, the, the this thing where people have wine tastings. I had never heard this, that, that you have wine tastings, you can have a horizontal or a vertical tasting. That's right. So yeah, a, tell people a, like what right. that is. So like a horizontal tasting would be one year, one vintage, let's say a 2020 vintage, but it would be a bunch of different wines. Like maybe it's like 10 or 20 or even more. Uh, wines all from that year and you're comparing so so you have the same sort of weather conditions same growing conditions but you're comparing the wines against each other a vertical tasting you're taking a single wine from a single producer and you're looking at it over different years and it could be like a hundred years or samples from a hundred years of a single wine and then you can see sort of how that makes a difference in how it tastes and i don't want to give away the end of ben's book but i'll point out that um, once like Wall Street finance people got into the, not that this happened like definitively overnight, but as it became fashionable to host wine tastings and people were filling out their verticals or horizontals, there'd always be these really hard to find bottles. Like there's sort of like the, the bottlenecks in the process of assembling bottles. And there emerges a gentleman who is always seems to find one. Right. Like there's some guy who wants this <laughs> extremely rare 1947, you know, Cheval Blanc, which was a, one, one of the famous ones. And, uh, and this guy, Hardy Rodenstock, you know, miraculously just bought a private cellar that had a dozen 1947 Cheval Blancs. Yeah. And over time, so many bottles of Cheval Blanc came on the auction market that there were more bottles of it for sale than had ever been produced. <laughs> uh Doing that led into, like, you, you, you wrote so many other things that have always been, you know, cranking out so much work, but doing that led into a stint for you. It gave you, like, a temporary shtick as the person, like, a person who goes and examines what's the most expensive blank one can get. It's true, yeah. I did two articles um, for GQ magazine about... uh I think it was called like the 1% of the 1% just trying out super expensive or rare things like, uh, um, you know, the Bugatti Veyron sports car or the most expensive bed, the the Hostens, it's a Swedish bed called the Hostens Vividus bed, um, where I, I mean, to try it, I had to sleep in the showroom and for like insurance reasons the the company made us hire a security guard just to, while I was in there (laughs) sleeping sleeping in the bed with like you know, glaring New York City lights shining in through the plate glass windows. And then you did, did you do the most expensive toilet? 
I did. It was Japanese Toto <laughs> toilet. Uh, delightful experience. Um, the most expensive just, airplane. Just, the most mo- expensive airplane ride. Most expensive airplane ride going to Dubai, where you have a you actually have a cabin instead of a seat, and you can take an in flight shower, and you get a smoothie afterwards. I mean, it, even though the smoothie was you know maybe like five dollars add on value, it just kind of caps it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you did the most expensive fishing trip you can go on. The most expensive fishing trip, which I think you went on a similar trip, if not the same one, down in Patagonia. Exactly. I was on the exact same trip. Fly fishing. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't on it with you, but I was on yeah. a similar yeah. trip. I think you gave me a few pointers with the fly fishing rod before I went. My wife was wound up being attracted to those guide dudes because they wore flight suits. <laughs> I did not know that. I was I was, we, well, was a, we weren't even married yet. It was an early date. I took her on an early date, which gave her the wrong idea about what our scene was going to be. And then she wound up taking quite a shine to all these young whippersnappers running around in <laughs> helicopter pilot suits, which is the weird. Oh, that's a weird ass trip. What, and, what, what was when you have a reservation like a hotel or a, a restaurant or something, are people ever expecting Detroit Pistons defensive player of the year, Ben Wallace? You know, <laughs> I, that ever come every up? now and then, every now and then I do get a little bit of a look like you're not what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Very different. Because yeah, you have all, all, all your teeth and everything are lined up. I, I don't know anything about his dentistry. I just, uh, you know, does I, just, he have I don't look like he a professional. He has much more hair than I do, and, you know, he looks like a professional athlete. Yeah, burlier. Yeah, he's about a foot taller than yeah. this Ben Wallace. Um, darker skin, bigger hair, um, much different. Okay. Also, the, the Pistons are a basketball team, not a hockey team, if that's <laughs> what you were referring to with the teeth. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> why did I think hockey? That was perfect, though, Steve. Like you, when you play in this, I'm not so knowing I'm sports ball thing. I mean, it's very, it's very on brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why did I think hockey? I don't know. What was the position you said made it felt to me like a hockey position? Goalie. Well, uh, he was a power forward. He was a defensive. Yeah, player I just hear that, year. and I feel like it must be hockey. Mm. Uh, <laughs> reason the the thing that Ben all that stuff was not worthy. All that all that work was not worthy. But what is worthy is Ben has just finished a large piece of reporting on the Forest Fen treasure. Um you probably have attained now, I would say, like a high level of subject matter expertise on the Forest Fen treasure, surpassing, surpassing that of our own. Spencer Newharth, who has, I don't know, a mild interest. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, tell who, what you got. We could give Ben a break and Spencer could explain what he feels the Fen treasure is. Or we just go right to Ben. No, go right to Ben. <laughs> explain the Fen treasure. All right. The Fen treasure. We've got to understand too. Forest Fen. Forest Fen. Well, no, I got this all planned out. So you want me to talk about the treasure I before start I talk with about tre- who Forrest is? No, you can do it briefly, but okay. I want to get into the all guy. Right. Okay. I want to get into the guy, but first I just want people to be like, oh, that yeah. thing. The Fen treasure is a chest of treasure, including a lot of gold coins, gold nuggets, gems, some ancient jewelry um, that was hidden in the Rockies in 2010. Um, and that by a eccentric guy from Santa Fe, a wealthy art collect, art art dealer, and that set in motion a treasure hunt that has had, you know, possibly several hundred thousand people searching for it for the last decade. A million bucks, 
About about a million, yeah. But then a million, but that's not counting its collective value as now a cultural artifact. Absolutely. Which can make it exponentially greater. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Four people have died looking for it. Five at least. Five have died trying Mm -hmm. to find the treasure. Yep. Okay. With that established, uh, uh, I now want to jump in and explain real quick how I became aware of Forrest Fenn. And I feel that I was telling, I've been friends with Ben for a long, long time. Like in excess of a decade. I think 13 years. And I feel like I was probably from the start, from early on, I mentioned the dude Forrest Fenn to you. I knew this, this, this art, well, an art collector, fighter pilot. He's a Vietnam pilot, correct? Flew 328 combat missions. Uh, Eccentric, antiquities dealer, just man about town in, in Santa Fe. I heard about him a long time ago when I was when I first got interested in Clovis points, so Ice Age projectile points, spear like spear points from the Ice Age. Um, when I got interested in Clovis points, you couldn't read much about Clovis points without reading about a collection of Clovis points that had been dubbed the Fen Cash, and. Anthropo- I, I knew a number of anthropologists who were like legit academic anthropologists, a number of anthropologists who were kind of like pot hunters, meaning they're, they're hobbyists who like to hunt arrowheads. And they would often sit and argue about and speculate on the legitimacy of the Fen Cash. And it was this some hand, I don't know, a dozen or some handful of Clovis points. And the one guy I came to know best, Tony Baker, who passed away would explain to me that he knew for a fact. I can say, I think I can say this because he's dead. He told me, now everybody's dead. He told me he knew for a fact that some of the Clovis points in the Fen Cash were phonies. Then I became aware of the Fen Treasure because I had heard, and I was not, this is not correct. I had heard that some of these Clovis points had made their way into the Fen treasure. And last night I learned that they're not. Yeah, I mean, when I started reporting on this, that was one of the first questions I asked because you had mentioned that to me. And I learned that he had sold the Fen cash before he hid the treasure. So what, uh, give us a rundown of, I mean, I just touched on a little bit, but Give a rundown of like this guy's background and why he would have emerged as a person to like set off a treasure hunt. Like what is you know what is, what motivated him anyways? I mean he he uh, grew up in Texas. His dad was a school teacher, and growing up, I think really young, he started collecting arrowheads, and that ignited a lifelong obsession with collecting things and with you know in particular Native American antiquities. Um, and when he became a pilot, he joined the Air Force and then was in Vietnam, you know, flew all these missions, was shot down and rescued twice. Um, but even as a pilot, he would, you know, use his flights to kind of survey the landscape and occasionally like put down and, you know, scour ruins for collectibles. And so he was just a, a real kind of obsessive collector. And 
after he got out of the Air Force, he moved to Santa Fe from Texas and um, became an art dealer. And so then he had a kind of professional way to pursue his passion of collecting and owning things. And his house in Santa Fe was full of, um, you know, things like Sitting Bull's Peace Pipe and all kinds of, you know, kind of fabled relics. And um, and he was just a lifelong collector. And then eventually in, in the mid to late 80s, he sold his art gallery after being a big part of the Santa Fe art boom. And he uh, bought a huge uh, Indian Pueblo, the San Lazaro Pueblo, basically as his personal archaeological hunting ground. And then he spent the next 10 years there kind of excavating it himself. Courting uh, no shortage of controversy <laughs> in the Court, process. Courting no shortage of controversy. There were accusations that he had found human bones. There were, you know, various mediations with tribes over, you know, certain things he found in the Pueblo. Um, well, how much did he buy that thing for? I don't know. I don't think that, that number has been published. Okay. Yeah. But it was, I mean, I think it was over a thousand acres. It was, it was a huge thing. Like bought an old Pueblo, let's say like an old village site. Yep. To dig it up. Yep. You mentioned the Santa Fe art boom as if it was like an event. What, what was that? It was, so I guess in the uh, 70s and early 80s, Santa Fe became um, a popular place for art collectors to go to buy cowboy art, Indian artifacts, um, sort of new Western art. Um, and Fenn was at the center of that. I think a lot of kind of Hollywood celebrities got into the Southwestern look. So, you know, Michael Douglas, Suzanne Summers, uh, Ralph Lauren, people like that, um, became Suzanne, enamored of this Suzanne art boom. Summers. Three's Company, the Regal Beagle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dude, that was a very suggestive television show. I remember one episode <laughs> where someone's overhearing two people in the bathroom trying to make a shower curtain fit. And it's not long enough. And someone overhearing the conversation coming to a conclusion about something else going on. Very suggestive for its time. I missed time. that episode. Yeah. yeah. I, I've often brought up that I think Shakespeare stole most of his material from Three's Company <laughs> because that's where he developed his love for like misheard conversations, you know, but, uh, that's a good on. premise for a novel. Like Shakespeare traveled, traveled back in time from Three's Company to, and started writing know. his comics. He's like, this is going to blow up in the Elizabethan era. Yeah. He's like, yeah. they're going to, people are going to love this when I get back to where yeah. I came from. This idea that you hear a conversation, miss, only hear a part of it, get a, come to a wild conclusion <laughs> It's all textbook threes come. Don Don Knotts should be in, should have been in more Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. What yeah. you're saying, hitching up his breeches. Yeah. Okay, uh, so walk through as best you can to how this, you know, art dealer, um, kind of a little bit of a fabulist. I mean, he himself a, a said a raconteur. A, a raconteur. I mean, he, <laughs> raconteur. he himself said, you know, eighty-five percent of what I say is true. You know, and he said he said that he said um, it's not what you are; it's what people think you are. So there was a little bit of the the kind of roguish storyteller to him always. Can you quickly tell the story you talk about in your article, um, at least an early draft of your article, where he has a 
thing on display in his gallery. Yeah, yeah. But Right. Someone that works for him knows more than he knows about what's on display or not. Yeah. So he he had an intern. This is in, I think, the early 80s or late 70s. And he had an intern named Linda Durham who would later go on to found like a pretty major Santa Fe art gallery. And she was a Playboy bunny. She had been a Playboy bunny, which I think in those days meant you like actually worked at like a Playboy club. Oh, I see. This is in New York City. And she was really interested in Egyptology. Go figure. And a customer of hers at the Playboy Club um, made a gift to her of a small, like something small and mummified. Um, And she had it x-rayed by a doctor friend um, using like a medical x-ray device. And it was a baby crocodile that had been mummified. But for real, mummified by Egyptians. It was a real Egyptian mummified baby crocodile. And those guys were just interesting (laughs) stuff, man. Like a Nile crocodile. I mean, I don't know. If, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know which river it came from, but it would, yeah, yeah, my guess perhaps. that that's uh, my my guess is that species. Yeah. Um, and they wrapped it up like a little Halloween costume and mummified it. Yep. Man, those guys. <laughs> so, at a certain point, I think she needed money. She sold it privately to a private collector, and eventually, by bizarre coincidence, it ends up in Fen's hands. Like he buys it. I think he was always buying. Just like interesting objects. So he buys this for the gallery and he displays it um, in a case and says, you know, deaccession from the British Museum, you know, and it was sort of implied that it was a human mummy. But what's deaccession mean? That means like sometimes museums have um, too much stuff and they maybe need money, so they sell the stuff. But does that give, is that meant to give it a path of legitimacy? Yes. It gives it, yeah, it gives it sort of this, you know, or of, of of validation and respectability. Okay. Is that only in museum lingo or is there another case where you would say – I think private, private collectors okay. who have sort of collections deaccession things. I learned this working on the wine book because the Forbes family collected all kinds of stuff and they would deaccession things from their collection. Yeah. A lot yeah. of other people do that. They call it uh, selling something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start like, switching all the yeah. shit I get I'm rid deaccessioning of. deaccessioning my old lawnmower. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so continue about the crocodile. All right, so Linda Durham, young you know, intern in Fenn's gallery, sees this thing that used to belong to her and went to, to Forrest Fenn and said, you know, that's not deaccession by the British Museum. Like, that's a little baby crocodile I got from some <laughs> guy who came to the Playboy Club. And, you know, she said Fenn was not happy to have the story he was telling about this object corrected. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to bring up the uh, – it's important to bring up – I don't want to call them credibility actors. I don't want to call them credibility problems. It's important to bring up the, the showmanship of Fenn. Or what's the word you would use? Showmanship? Credibility gap? I don't know. No, I think he's, he was a you know he was a promoter. He was a salesman. He's not unique in the art business that way. I think there's a – fair amount of that among art dealers. You kind of hype things. Um, but, and he was, as you said, he was a storyteller. So, you know, you know, it might be a good word for him. A bit of a rascal. He was rascally. I think he liked to just generate like ideas yeah. and, and create a yeah. ruckus. He was, a, he was a rascal. And actually I talked to this uh, curator at the American Museum of Natural History, David Hurst Thomas, who knew and, liked Fenn, 
um, unlike a lot of archaeologists who thought he was a pot hunter. And Thomas said Forrest was a rascal. You know, he reminded me of the what you see in the the Native American oral literature a lot. Oh yeah, the that's, where I, that's how the word got in my head. Is you yeah. use the word? Yeah. I was thinking my buddy Fred, who used to call Bill Clinton the rascal president. And that, that word's always stuck in my head. But yeah. But he was like attempting to build this image as though like um, <clears throat> the Dosakis commercial is the most interesting man in the world. Like it it has a big that energy to oh, it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, but he's got like. 300 combat. I mean, there's like a foundation there. Right. Absolutely. And in yeah. fact, you know, when I went into this, I first thought, oh, am I going to have to do all this kind of verification, like get his military records? Because that's, this sounds like a tall story, but it actually is, is all true. Yeah. Yeah. And there was somewhere along the way, I think, where he had crashed um, a, a jet and then somebody went in to where he said he crashed it and they found it and like verified the whole story about you know, this crash oh, that, you know, had. who did yeah. that? I didn't know this. I met those guys. I have a giant thing. It's oh, a long story. Do you mind if I tell this real Please. quick? Interest? I have a, a box of 1000 meat bags, plastic bags that butchers use to send meat home in because years ago, the production company we work with was doing a show with Pat LaFrieda. The guys I work with, the camera guys I work with, had been working on that and came over to my house with these bags of lamb meat and whatnot, and I was admiring the bags. They passed along to the Lafritas that I was an admirer of the bags. They sent me a 1,000 of them. I still have them. Use them all the time. So when, I, when the name popped up, the Pat Lafritas brother, the famous butcher, went to Vietnam to find a chunk of airplane we was planning to, but he ended up, he hired local, he hired some Australians, uh, expats in Vietnam to do the on the ground work for him. He, um, so they actually found it. But he was, you know, in live remote touch and with them all the time. why did he want it? He's an engineer. He became electrical engineer. He became, um, I think, really interested in the puzzle of seeing, of sort of the historical research and, um, you know, could he crack this puzzle? Could he, he was a treasure hunter. Oh, so he was a Fen treasure guy. He was guy. a Fen treasure guy. Oh, and if you're a Fen treasure guy, it was a spin-off. Exactly. So like if you're a Fen treasure guy, job 1 is basically making a study of Forest Fen because you're trying to understand like places that might have been special to him where he might have hid the treasure. So Chris Lafrida happened to go down the rabbit hole of Fen's Vietnam experience and thought it would be an interesting challenge to try to find this wreckage if it still was Did still there. Did he sell it back to Fen? He oh, he gave him. He gave him a couple of the pieces that he got. No shit. Yeah. Man. I mean, he was using like drone, you know, sending drones over the jungle and then they sent people in on the ground after they had some evidence. And they talked to villagers who were like, oh yeah, there's wreckage over on that slope over there. No kidding. Yeah. So get us into how, get us into what he's thinking when he decides to, at whatever point, a decade ago, build up a little treasure box and hide it. Well, the story of the treasure begins 30... Two years ago, 1988, Forrest Fenn was diagnosed with kidney cancer and told it was terminal. His father had died of pancreatic cancer, and his father, when he was diagnosed with cancer, had swallowed, I think, 50-plus sleeping pills um, to spare his family the agony of, you know, a drawn-out death. Yeah. So when Forrest is diagnosed with terminal cancer in 1988, he decides he's going to do the same thing, but with the twist that he's going to go to a remote place that he had already decided upon as the place where he wanted to die, somewhere in the Rockies. And he was going to die there, but he was going to bring a chest of treasure that he was going to create with him. And people could 
search for his body, and when they got there, they could take the treasure. So he's going to create a treasure hunt that would accompany his, his burial site. And he was going to create a poem with a puzzle in it as the uh, sort of mystery. As a suicide note. As it, the suicide note was going to be this, this kind of, you know, encrypted treasure map that people would have to try to crack. That's great. But then that's where that's where if you're the centric, that's how you put your money where your mouth is, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when the rubber meets the road and you keep at it like that. That's like that's my that's that's great eccentricity right there. But he doesn't die. But then he doesn't die. <laughs> Improbably, he did not die. He recovered fully from cancer. Um and but he kept sort of toying around with this idea of hiding a treasure chest. He would and, talk about it. Yeah, he talked about it to friends. In fact, you know, when friends came to his house, he had a walk-in vault in his house where he kept some of his more valuable um, collectibles. And when friends came over, he'd like bring him into the vault where he also had the bottle of pills that he, he had planned to take with him. <laughs> and he would show them this this work in progress, which was this bronze ten by ten treasure chest that he was filling with. Valuables. Oh, that's how big it was? 10 by 10 inches, yep. But 42 pounds, 42 pounds. Oh, that explains Actually, no, a lot, man. Pounds I was thinking of, I didn't know, yeah. I was thinking of a big ass. Remember I was asking you a lot of questions last night about the actual, like, stashing of it? 10 by 10. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yep. I was picturing, like, like in a pirate movie. Totally. Like a yeah. steamer trunk size. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 10 by 10. Yeah. Okay, go yeah, on. Yep. Um, you know, I'm looking at Spencer just pull up a picture of it. So he kept, you know, playing around with what was going to be in the chest. And he would take, you know, put stuff in, take it out. And his main goal was to create a treasure that, like, when the finder opened the lid, they would just be dazzled by it. Like, it wasn't just going to be a box with some valuable stuff in it. It was going to actually look like that treasure chest out of, like, you know, a pirate Storybooks, pirate <laughs> movies. Exactly. Except that it's too small a box. <laughs> yeah. A small pirate yeah, box. Yeah, I would have found it and I'd have been like, oh, I was expecting something much larger. <laughs> I'd have walked away in disgust. So one of the questions was, well, if he hides this treasure, how's he going to know if it ever gets found, if it's off in some really remote place? And so one of the th- the things he was trying to figure out was how can I – what can I what can I leave in the box um, that will let me know it's been found? And I think at that time, like it was kind of early for GPS, and he wasn't that technically minded a guy. So I don't think there was ever a question. And also, the idea was that this might be there for a thousand years. So I don't think he was ever seriously considering a technological solution. But one of the things he considered was putting something like a um, bank doc, you know, a bank letter or a bearer bond worth enough money that the finder would have to go to the bank to cash it out. So it's like a $100,000 bearer bond. They're not going to just sit on that. And when they went to the bank, he would be notified. He then, though, um, thought, well, what if the bank doesn't exist anymore? So apparently he <laughs> he took that out of the chest and he came up with some other item. He kicked that, around. You, you imagine he you know, kicked around putting some $1,000 bills in it, which I didn't know existed. He, did, he actually put in some $1,000 bills, which, Whoa. you know, as – was recently discovered on the internet, Grover, features the face of Grover Cleveland. Um, and then he took them out because he thought they would rot over time. <laughs> huh. So the no $1,000 bills. So no $1,000 bills. No Clovis points. No Clovis points. But like a lot of like big gold nuggets, eagle, gold eagle coins, double eagles, 
um, other kind of more esoteric jewelry. And some projectile points or no? I don't know. I'm not sure. I thought you mentioned that there were some projectile points in there. I think someone I talked to said they thought there were, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Maybe you put them in and took them out. And I'm did sure that a couple of yeah. times because it looks like he's like staging the perfect right. scenery. Yeah, he might have thought, <laughs> you know, the points weren't like impressive enough visually. Yeah. So he stashes it. So he stashes it. Well, so in, in um, the summer of 2010, he hides it, um, doesn't tell anybody where, um, and he self-publishes a memoir called The Thrill of the Chase – with this 24-line, six-stanza poem um, that contained what you needed to – what you would need to figure out where the chest was hidden. Spencer, uh, can you read for us some lines? Well, t- I'll tell you when we, I start getting bored. Uh, some lines from the, 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 the poem that explains where the treasure is. As I've gone alone in there, and with my treasures bold, I can keep my secret where, and hint of riches new and old. Begin it where warm waters halt, and take it in the canyon down. Not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. From there, it's no place for the meek, the end is drawing ever nigh. There'll be no paddle up your creek, just heavy loads and water high. If you've been wise and found the blaze, look quickly down your quest to cease. But tarry scant with marvel gaze, just take the chest and go in peace. So why is it that I must go and leave my trove for all to seek? The answer I already know, I've, I've done it tired and now I'm weak. So hear me all and listen good, your effort will be worth the cold. If you are brave and in the wood, I give you the title to the gold. Hmm. That has everything you need to know. And then he, over the decade, makes himself available. I, Intermittently. I think in, in terms of the rascaliness, though, I think before we move on, we got to back up to 2009, which is a year before he hid the treasure, which is when the FBI knocks on his door. And many other art dealers and diggers and uh, holders of, you know, artifacts from the Four Corners area. Um, and it's the FBI is, uh, I, I don't know what the, the name of the case was, but Fenn was involved. And I think they took like 10 things from his home, um, some small stuff, um, all the way up to a bison skull that they had taken. But no charges were ever filed in this deal. But they kept his stuff? I, I don't know I about he, that. I think he got them back. I mean, there were charges filed a bunch against a bunch of other people. Yeah. I think there were like over 30 people were yep. arrested, uh, but not against him. And well, it, why, but here, hold on a minute, no. I, it's interesting to point it out, but if the FBI knocks on your door and takes a bunch of your stuff, and then there's no charges filed and they give you your stuff back, why is it brought up as though you did something bad? Because it's like, I, I like don't know. guilt by... Yeah, like they didn't determine that he did something bad. Fen Fen appeared to be like the most minor player in what ended up happening. It was so big that I think there were there were th- three people that committed suicide in the case. What? Two people that had their doors knocked down to grab stuff, and then the informant himself mm-hmm. killed himself. Um, and, really? and Fen yeah. never had any charges in the thing. But, it, but let's it's say just I like, said, let's say I said, oh, I heard the FBI kick Spencer's door down. Mm-hmm. 
And then someone's like, yeah, but they had the wrong door. They meant to go to the neighbor's place. I'd be like, still. <laughs> well, one thing that happened, one thing, one thing that happened. Still, he must be a bad person. One thing that happened is the Associated Press falsely reported that Fenn had been indicted. And they then had to correct that. But so like the day of, he was probably the most best known person of all the people who got rounded up in that whole operation. And so it was kind of hard to, you know, bring the horse back into the barn after that was reported. Oh. People just, just thought Fenn was, you know more implicated than he was. Yeah, and I, yeah. I don't think it's like a far leap either. That I don't this, mean to sound like Alan Dershowitz here, but I'm just saying sure. it's like, there's a little bit of like, you know, if, if, he did, if he didn't get in trouble and got his shit back, I don't know that that's a bad, like... Uh, understood, but I don't think it's a far leap to like okay. look at this happening in 2009, and then a year later he hides one or two million dollars worth of oh, um, I see where you know, Spencer's pieces going with this. of memorabilia somewhere in the Rocky Mountains and doesn't tell anybody where. So there, uh, I think there's, like, suspicion there. And, mm-hmm. and it's why a lot of people throughout this, and, like, even now that it's pretty much over, have suspected that there was no treasure um, or that, like, this was a, a ploy to sell books. I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll revisit this part of the story itself, but it plays into the thing of, like, uh, this guy doesn't have a perfect past, and so it could be a reason why... Uh, this isn't just like an innocent treasure hunt. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Had you encountered ends. that? Had you encountered that little plot twist in your reporting, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean but, the, but the idea that he's like, I know what I'll do with all my illegal stuff is put yeah. in this box and buried out in the woods. Yeah, but uh, yes, but I, I'm glad you remembered it because I actually had forgotten that part. Yeah. Hmm. You chose not to put that in your article. I did. Really? Why? Because I forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much you can fit. It's a long ass article. Yeah, I was looking. Looking. I couldn't put the Fen Cash in there. You know. Yeah. The whole point was to talk about the Fen Cash, the project, the Clovis points. That's why I wanted a big Clovis point article from Ben Wallace. And what do I get? Was it? Was that his only brush up with like the FBI that you know of? Yeah, but he was – I actually – I talked to a um, BLM agent who who was involved in that case. And, like, Fenn had been on everyone's radar for years. I mean, he was, like, constantly kind of a figure of suspicion. He knew a lot of the people. And he was someone who really seemed to kind of tread close to the line a lot and was constantly having these skirmishes with, you know, archaeologists, with museums, with the state government. Um, so I think he was kind of ripe to be under suspicion. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. 
Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand times more. If you got a family and you got people that rely on you, you need to take life insurance seriously. And Policy Genius is the country's leading online insurance marketplace. So with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars in coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your life insurance policy, you know, that you get at work may not offer enough protection for your family's needs. Policy Genius gives you unbiased advice from a licensed expert support team. Now, this is super convenient, right? Because a lot of times, you know, something like life insurance, you're just going to put it off because you're like, when will I ever have time to do that? I don't even know who to talk to about it. Well, this helps you do it online. Okay, again, you're comparing options from top companies, all right? Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, we're going to jump to this. Fenn, over the decade or over the years, makes himself sort of available to, to the hundreds of emerging individuals thousands thousands who set out to find the treasure now i want you to talk a little bit about who these people are how they operate how they communicate but in that include that fend continues to um give little like getting warmer or nope, not that. Or I can assure you, it's not this. Like, talk about how that dialogue emerges between the treasure hunters and the treasure hider. Well, Fe- I mean, Fenn had always been—you know—he loved the media. I mean, he was actually controversial. One of the things he was controversial for in the Santa Fe art community was the degree to which he kind of courted press attention. And so, 
it was inevitable that when he starts this treasure hunt, like part of the appeal for him would be all the attention it was going to bring him. And so he was very open, not only he was open to treasure hunters, but he was also very um, open to the media. He went on the Today Show a bunch of times, which in in 2013, he, he went on the Today Show and it kind of blew the whole thing up. I mean, that's when I think a lot more people got into the hunt. But after he did his initial appearance on the Today Show, just talking about, you know, this hunt he had started three years earlier, um, he agreed to come back on the Today Show once a month for the next, I don't know, nine months and give a clue each time. And he did it maybe three times. And then I think he got, he sort of stopped liking the the um, the pressure the Today Show was putting on him to give a serious clue each time. Because he was giving pretty minor stuff like, well, it's not in a graveyard. You know, I think <laughs> I think the Today Show was kind of like, we need you to give us better than that. Yeah, they wanted some of them are pizzazz. Yeah, more yeah. pizzazz. Like, you know, so. They wanted it to <clears> like, they wanted to lead to a discovery, right? They're trying to force. I think so. They're trying to, yeah, narrow yeah. the search possibilities. Yeah. Um, okay, so so simultaneous with that, there emerges this robust community of treasure hunters around the Fen treasure. Um, and, you know, on the internet, they all get together in a bunch of forums that are extremely um, active and, you know, people throwing out their various theories, which they called solves, or people talking about their, you know, boots-on-the-ground trips, as they referred to their field trips, to actually look for the treasure. Um, and like, you know, like the Internet is about everything, I mean, it was, a, it was a, a very varied group of people with varying levels of um, evidence backing up their theories. And so, so, you know, there were people who would put forward um, serious interpretations of the poem, and then there would be other people who would say, um, did you notice in that interview Fenn was wearing a hat and there was a hole in the hat? And if you look closely under a microscope, that hole is the shape of Colorado. So I think that's telling us the treasure is in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some of the clues he gave were substantive. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, one of the first major clues he gave was he narrowed the, the initial description of where the treasure was, was it's in the mountains north of Santa Fe. And initially, a lot of people thought that meant it was in New Mexico. At a certain point, it kind of broadened. People realized he was talking about the Rocky Mountains as a whole, but he excluded Utah and Idaho. I think he excluded Canada. So then it was basically narrowed to the four search states were Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. And didn't someone think if you went north long enough, you'd eventually wind up back south of his house and that must be where it was? Exactly. One, 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 one of the like you circumnavigate the globe and wind up in Albuquerque. This was actually a a woman who ran one of the main forums. Her theory was that it was buried in Fenn's backyard, (laughs) and I said, "But what about it being north of Santa Fe?" And she said, "Well, if you go all the way around the world, you can be in his backyard and still be north of Santa Fe." (laughs) He then people start dying. Then people started dying. I mean, people were were interpreting, you know, really like like home of Brown. People started interpreting as an outhouse. So he had to eliminate, like, say it's not it's not in an outhouse. It's not under an outhouse. That's so reductive. Yeah, but there's but home, yeah. So home of Brown, you get into that too because there's another interesting thing. Uh, everyone, everyone who's read Catcher in the Rye, which if you haven't, go read it. it's a phenomenal book. Catcher in the Rye, written by J D. Salinger. J.D. Salinger's publisher was Little Brown. The Salinger family ended up owning a property 
in Wyoming or, or something? There was a Salinger Ranch. It was in Wyoming. I'm not sure whether or not it was. So home of Brown, be like, that must be it. Yeah. Little Brown. Yeah. Um, Their author's family's ranch. Yeah. Crazy shit. Yeah. So this, the, the search began just attracting, you know, thousands and thousands of people. Some of those people were kind of desperados. They, were, they you know, they quit their job they or they went bankrupt or they, you know, they they kind of had nothing to lose. And they they went out there and a lot of them had minimal, if any, wilderness experience. And I have a great book they should have brought with them. I think I've heard about that. It's available what, is, for, what is it? It's available for pre-order. It's called the the Mediator's Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. It would have saved a lot of lives. A lot of lives. A lot of people are saying it would have saved a lot of lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this guy named Randy Billu, um puts in to the Rio Grande on a inflatable raft, um, and is not heard from again. The kids, like, wasn't it like a child? Apparently it was a child's inflatable raft. Because he's got in his head, because the words put in are in there, he's got in his head that it's like, you need to do a float. You need to do a river float to find it. Like, that he put in somewhere, cashed the treasure, and then proceeded down the river, and so that must, so everybody starts doing float trips. So everyone starts doing float trips. So eventually his body is found, he drowned. Uh, Two more guys drowned, uh, one, I think, also in the Rio Grande, another in the Arkansas River. Um, a fourth guy died in Yellowstone National Park. He was he slipped on a slope and dropped 500 feet um, to his death. And then another guy uh, snowmobiled into Dinosaur National Monument wearing like a thin jacket and jeans and froze to death. Hmm. And that same guy had That's the one I empathize most with. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> Here's why you shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> because a month beforehand, he had to get rescued for the same thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And okay. it was some of these moments um, that inspired Fenn to, like, give further clues, as he talked about, like, having this dialogue, right? Trying so, like, to stem you know, the bleeding. Yeah. So, like, when, when this Randy died in the Rio Grande, I think uh, Fenn had just said it's, like, not in the Rio Grande. Or uh, he had said it's, like, it's not uh, south of Santa Fe or something like that. Basically eliminating um, the Rio Grande. And then Randy's wife, uh, you probably – covered this banner, saw it, but she, like, came out and was very vocal that, like, this treasure does not exist. This is all a hoax. Um, because she wanted to sue the guy. Probably, I mean, I'm, I'm sure she had many motives um, for her husband being killed looking for the treasure, but she was, like, one of the very vocal people that was like, yep. this this isn't real. Yep. And, and actually, the head of the New Mexico State Police, Pete Cassettas, uh publicly implored Fenn to, to end the hunt, um, you know, to stop the deaths. Yeah, and, and it, I, I, in your article, I was surprised to read too that that the Fen treasure, in addition to Breaking Bad, the television show, is credited with, with an influx in tourism to New Mexico. It was that substantial. New Mexico's tourism department created a video featuring Fen as part of like their tourism drive. Yeah. It's weird because we've had New Mexico advertise tourism. And in the notes, it says you can't mention Breaking Bad. But it didn't say not to mention the Fen treasure. Interesting. Yeah, I I think Breaking Bad sent a lot of people to Albuquerque, and um, Fen sent a lot of people to Santa Fe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He then, he gave some other, he also started to give some other clues. Like, he kept saying, keep, he, he said, 
in terms of the put-in and river access, this is all just shadowing from your article, yeah. but in terms of the river access, someone, eventually a, a searcher, what do they call themselves? Chasers. Chasers. Asked him, did you return, like when you deposited the treasure, did you return by the exact same path? And he said, yes. Which eliminated this idea that he did a river trip. Exactly. Yeah. And then so he clever. said... I guess a number of times he said, I was how old? 80? When he, when he buried it or hit it. It's yeah. 45 yeah. pounds. I'm 80 years old. I carried it from my car. So keep that in mind. Yep. To eli- presumably to eliminate a lot of the people that are doing the crazy. Yeah, he eliminated, said, like, it's not, it, it, that was the main thing. It's, no, it's nowhere an 80 year old man couldn't have gone. Um, but yeah, specifically, it's not in the Rio Grande. I think he might have even said it's not in a river or beside a river. Um, yeah, and I think I think he maybe eliminated like national parks because of the Yellowstone thing. Um, no, I don't, he no? never eliminated national parks. Okay, right? maybe, maybe um, it was uh, the Yellowstone thing. It was like you don't need rock climbing gear. It, it was something from one yeah, of those incidents. Yeah. Nothing. You're not. Yeah, you don't need to, crampons or like you're not going to be rappelling down. Although there was a guy, another guy, who uh, rappelled into the Grand Canyon um, and ran out of rope before he got to the bottom. <laughs> and then when like 11 National Park Service people came to rescue him and they, they got him down, he ran away because he was worried one of them was going to steal his solve. <laughs> These people. And then there was an Indiana treasure hunter in Yellowstone um, that got caught in an area he wasn't supposed to be in Yellowstone National Park doing something he wasn't supposed to be. I, I think he was doing some rock climbing. And uh, – when he got to the judge, he said, you might call me a lunatic, whatever, but I feel wholeheartedly I solved that Fen treasure thing. I still feel it's down there, Your Honor. I dare anybody to figure out a better solve. And so his defense of being yep. in this place he wasn't supposed to be was like, that's where the treasure was, Your Honor. Uh, <laughs> that's why I should be innocent. There were, there were I just say, like, there, were, there were hundreds of people who said, I definitely have the correct solve. And when people would say, well, then why don't you have the treasure? (laughs) They would say either like, well, he clearly removed it or it was never there and this whole thing's a hoax. Or um, there must be like a proxy item there, but the treasure itself isn't going to be there. So instead of just saying, oh, I guess my solve was wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can you get into – I think we've kind of touched on – the crazy shit is like – right? The crazy shit's fun, but – you can just kind of imagine, right? Like the hole in his hat or whatever. And and people, and you covered how people started getting very interested in his biography. And they're kind of looking for that like rosebud moment from Citizen Kane, right? Of like, what would be some place of particular resonance to him where he would have put this thing because he established that he put it somewhere important to him. So it has to be somewhere that he's been. So how do we find where all he's been? And, and all this kind of like avenue this whole avenue of approach emerges of like that, that you'll find additional materials within his biography, but spend some time on some of the people who are, who were thinking about it probably in the correct way. So a lot of the more serious searchers focused on Yellowstone because Fenn had said, my heart is in Yellowstone. And as a child, he had spent a lot of time with his family on fishing and camping trips in Yellowstone. Okay. So um, so that's where I would say 
most of the most serious searchers that I encountered spent most of their time. I mean, there were still some people in New Mexico looking, not that many in Colorado, quite a lot in Montana, but Wyoming and Yellowstone in particular was was sort of the biggest focus for a lot of people. One of the very popular spots was, you know, just like 30 miles from us, the way the crow flies, Hebgen Lake, because he had pictures in his biography um, of him at Hebgen Lake and riding horses there and talked about how much he loved it and stuff like that. So that became a very popular place as well, specifically at Hebgen Lake. Do you know that that, that uh, Osborne Russell in his journal, this is before Hebgen Lake existed. It's an, it's a, you know, it's an artificial lake. It's an impoundment. Um, they used to call that the fire hole as well. Mm. They would call holes like sheltered valleys where you could spend the winter. Because some guy showed up there and the whole thing was on fire. All that timber that used to be in the bottom was burning and they called it the fire hole. And then it got like subsumed by Lake Hebgen. Hmm. Um, people started to fe- realize or started to feel that there has to, that, that, that the poem can't do it. Like, like a, a literal understanding of the words in the poem that it can't be adequate. Like, it can't put you on a spot to find a 10 by 10 inch box. Right, it was just so, it was so vague. It could be interpreted in so many ways. And just to take one example of the clue where warm waters halt, you know, could refer to like uncountable sort of hydrothermal locations. You know, totally. there's, I mean, there's so many. I went down to the Boiling River when I first moved to Montana looking looking for this treasure. Oh, that just was stubbed your toe the... on a big box? <laughs> like, you know, I box? may have, but I wasn't, you know, maybe I mistook it for a rock. But um, uh, because Fed, but then one of these treasure hunters, the, the, the primary treasure hunter you profile, talks about that Fed had mentioned in some writing or some lecture or something, he had mentioned as a kid being in a river and how he would hop around near a hot spring trying to find water. This was that, Boiling River, actually. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it was Boiling. Yeah. That he would hop around and talk about places that were too hot, places that were too cold. And so him saying, begin where warm waters end or whatever, led some serious people to think that that's, that, 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 that like, that's, that's got to be, like, yeah. kind of where you need to look. Yep. Right. And you get another guy that thought, Sunlight Basin. That was also the same guy who whose first search location was Boiling River, um, really fixed on Sunlight Basin because that was the place where he found, you know, the Salinger Ranch and there were other sunlight he thought might refer to the warmth, Sunlight Creek. Um, and he found there was a mining claim where his clues sort of had led him there that happened to be owned by an LLC company that was registered to an attorney in Cody who sat on a museum board with Fenn. So mm. he thought, you know, that was that seemed kind of interesting. And one of the areas these guys focused was, is it on public or private land? And one of the things they looked at was this idea that Fenn probably did some due diligence about the legality. Yep. And so explain that little bit of the of the solve. I mean, there were so many potential legal issues, right? Like what what's what are the tax issues depending on what kind of land it's on? Um you know, what are, are, is it government property or can a finder claim it as property? Um, you know, what's going to happen with this? Is it, are the land rights stable? Like will it, in 500 years, uh, will the same, will the land still be preserved in the same way or might it have come into private ownership or leased out for logging or whatnot? So 
you know, there was a lot of thought given to what kind of land might Fenn have most seriously considered to 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 avoid those issues. And where was the the good money was on what public or private? I would say public, but um, but even that had a lot of complications. I mean, private probably had more complications. Because you right? couldn't search it. Right. You couldn't search He'd it. He'd be putting or, it somewhere where people wouldn't be able yeah, to look. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it was private land that he secretly owned, which was one possibility people looked at. Like and they tried to search to see if yeah, he Yeah, they were looking through public records, looking for – but, you know, things are kind of concealed by corporate ownership. and But there was a lot of attention paid to that possibility. Uh did he at one point in time – I think Spencer mentioned this to me. Did he at one point in time announce that someone had been a couple hundred yards from it? He said on more than one occasion that a bunch of people had been within 500 feet and one or two people had been within 200 feet of the treasure. Like actual searchers. Actual searchers because they would send him emails. He was fielding hundred, hundreds of emails, like over 100 a day. Um, searchers were constantly contacting him and he was – you know, engaging with them. Um, and so they would say, hey, I just, you know, here's my solve. They would want to tell him their solve. I think maybe some of them were hoping he would give him a clue or a, a hint, and um, which he would not do for the most part. Um, and so that's how he knew where people were searching. Yeah, and like all this dialogue um, that kind of happens among Fen and searchers and then Fen and media um, – and these different interviews, it causes like some missing clues that like, are, is it real? Is it not? Um, one of them that I came across a lot was that Fenn had supposedly said at some point during this that he had made a day trip from his house to hide the treasure, hmm. which would hung up a lot of people like, okay, well, then it can only be this far north hmm. from his house. But you start looking for it and you can't actually find where he said that. But there's like a oh, huge portion. I got you. Of of the searchers that think that's like a legit clue, but it can't be traced anywhere. And so I think there's a lot of stuff like that specific thing. It's like when that general supposedly said that the way to beat the Plains Indians is to kill all the buffalo. And then uh, historians eventually realize that that was never said. Yeah. So like the, the searching community had – Intentionally and unintentionally created these red herrings um, like this, you know, it's a day trip from his house sort of thing. There were also like these super searchers who kind of befriended Fenn and would really focus a lot on developing that relationship. And it created a certain amount of disharmony in politics in the in the chase community because people would think that some people were secretly being given like a leg up that they didn't have, that they were getting tips yeah. from Fenn. Uh I want to bump along to more contemporary uh, realizations here, but a thing that I want to cover, um, two observations. One was, uh, I'm sure there were people that were secretive, but it tended to be collaborative. You would post yourselves. I mean, the collaborative people would and the secret ones you wouldn't know. So there there was a community of people who'd be like, hey, how about this? Hey, how about this? Not like hoarding it for themselves, but they just wanted to like see it get, they wanted to see resolution. Yep. And not so much take ownership of who. Right. Um, one of the searchers that that the, the, the primary search you focus on. Tell me his name again. Justin Posey, who um, takes an extremely organized, passionate, expensive, exhaustive approach to this. He and a friend 
hit on an idea they don't attempt. They hit on an idea of this, this technological tool that's out there that can track someone's eyeballs. As they're looking at a screen, like what are they looking at? As they're looking at a screen, it's software that will see what would be to the human eye imperceptible movements and also what you're trying not to look at. So you can show someone a a screen and get a sense like this person is, is purposefully not putting their eyes in that direction or whatever. And they get this idea that if they could get Fen in a room with this software – with this program and flash for him a map of the Rockies, they will pick up what his eyeballs don't want. Well, and then, his eyeballs will betray what he doesn't want like them to know. Lie detector test, like CIA next level stuff. Here. And then they would dynamically keep changing what he was seeing. So if like his eye was going towards, let's say, First, it's in Wyoming, like northwestern Wyoming. Then it would immediately like zoom in on a close-up of northwestern Wyoming. And then it would look at what's he looking at or avoiding looking at there. And they would do it like very rapidly. I mean the computer could do it almost instantaneously. And I mean Justin said when he was working on eye tracking technology for a major technology company, I mean he's a a software um, engineer, uh, that it's shockingly precise. And he doesn't do it on ethical grounds. Right. I mean, first of all, getting Fenn in a room <laughs> and looking at a screen already begins to tread close to potentially sounding like kidnapping. <laughs> but even if he's there voluntarily, um, it just seemed like not, you know, not fair play. Like it's it's almost like, yeah. you know. And they're interested. Using in fair- an unconventional weapon. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. interested in fair play. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Now we're going to jump ahead to. I, I want to ask Ben what his oh. personal favorite find theory was like if you had to guess um where it was i mean i i i kind of think that these the solution that i might talk about in a little bit was the correct one mm. i don't okay. know mm. how about Did you it, well i yeah I, I don't know i enjoyed all of it they're like i, I biased i liked the idea of it being in paradise valley because it's an hour from where we're sitting right now. Um, and there was like a lot of very obvious um, stuff in there that seemed to make sense where it was like um, the warm waters halt, the boiling river, right? The Canyon down Yankee Jim Canyon, the mm-hmm. home of Brown, the Joe yep. Brown boat launch. Yep. Um, the end is drawing ever nigh. There's nigh Montana. And, and because I live here, I like the idea of the paradise Valley thing. And you're kind of a rock hound. Yeah, not and a rock picker, Doug right? Darren, but a rock hound. That's that's actually like probably where I saw the greatest overlap in communities where like people who like to look for rocks and then people who like to look for treasure. Way more so than like uh, people who like fishing huh. or mushroom hunting or something like oh, that. Oh, dude, I need to tell you, if you want some Yellowstone egg, mm-hmm. holy shit, I found the mother load. Mm. Let's talk later. I'll tell you later. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. 
you match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man, I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy myself online and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not, not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability. And way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Like every big news story, um, I wake up one day not long ago, and I have many, many text messages (laughs) from various friends. Uh, the Fen Cash has been discovered. Immediately, everyone I talk to says, bullshit! Because, I'll, I'll tell you why it's bullshit. Forrest Fen, these five people have died. Forrest Fen is under pressure to uh, stop the bleeding. Um, 
He's being sued by various participants who've devoted a decade of their life to finding the treasure. Uh, there's an, like, not emerging. There's always been a rumor that it's a lie. It's becoming too burdensome for him. He's of failing health, which is borne out by the fact that he died a couple of days ago, is of failing health. Uh, and he just needs to bring it to a close. The fun is over. So he bullshits up some photos or whatever and, and, and just tries to like wind it down. Not a lot of clarity. The guy that found it doesn't want to be known. It's all a lie. And that just goes to show you that it's all a lie. That is the, the initial narrative as I understood it. Is that fair, Spencer? Um, I, I don't think everybody was that pessimistic or like you and I were. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So I, I feel that way a little bit. By everybody, now. I mean us. Right, right. Now, now looking back, now that he died in like September and it was found in I don't know what was it July, June, June, June yeah. right? Again, like the timing is a little bit suspicious, just like with the FBI raid and him hiding the thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. There, there's like warranted suspicion still. I'll let Ben take it from here. Well, also just one found one it? other one other part of the burden was like. I mean, his family was dealing with a ton. Like, they had a guy break into their house with an axe, and his daughter held the guy at gunpoint. There was another guy who was stalking his granddaughter. So, like, Fenn had a lot of reasons why he might want to, you know, he'd created a monster, and he might want to end this. Um, so tell us what's known about the finder and what might be known about where it was found. All right, so Fenn initially just says it's been found, kind of more details to come. Um, you know, people were... A lot of people were skeptical. People wanted to know more. Maybe a week later, he posts a couple photos of him with what looks like the recovered treasure in what looks like a, like a lawyer's office or at a conference table. Um, but it's got, you know, dirt encrustment on some of it and age, signs of aging. Um, but still, it just wasn't enough. And people were like re- getting really angry, both at him and the finder for not telling more about what, where it had been found. And Fenn said, I have always said, and this is true, he had always said, I'm going to leave it to the finder to choose whether or not to identify themselves and to choose whether or not to, to reveal the location. Um, and the, the speculation was it was for the legal, potential legal implications. What if the guy doesn't want to pay taxes on it and report it to the IRS? Fenn had always been kind of anti-government, so he might be sympathetic to that. In any case, he had said that's what he would do, and he did it, but people were really angry about it. Everyone wanted closure. A lot of people thought it was a hoax. I mean, I was, I was pretty skeptical for all the reasons you mentioned. Um, Anyway, there's a ton of pressure on him. Finally, a couple weeks after the discovery, he posts online again. He says, the finder has agreed, you know, for the benefit of the community that I can reveal another detail, and that is the state in which it was found. It was found in Wyoming. So some people were satisfied by that. Some people thought it was further evidence of something not on the up and up because the three lawsuits against him concerned Colorado and New Mexico. So by saying it was in Wyoming, he immediately kind of invalidated the premises of these lawsuits. Hmm. And like the singular details that he had given were that it was a man and he was from back east, which when you live in New Mexico, there's a hell of a lot that's east of you. So that just like the details weren't even details, hmm. really. No, but that's not how back east is used. For a guy who hit, if a you're in New Mexico and you say back east, it's not some dude from Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, sure. it's just not. 
It's not. I mean, it's not. It doesn't narrow. It 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 trims off maybe a hundred million Americans, (laughs) but there's still a couple hundred million left over that way. (laughs) Yeah, the the Santa Fe New Mexican, which is his hometown newspaper, after like the solve or after it was found and it was announced and stuff. Um, they had they made a really good analogy. They said this is like a detective solving a murder without identifying the killer. That's like the feeling uh, that this gave everyone. Uh-huh. Well, if you listen to this podcast, you would be familiar with the story. We had an episode with a guy, very similar to this episode, with a writer who saw it missing in Costa Rica. The assumption was that he'd been murdered. Okay. And it was about his efforts to find his son's body. Roman Dial, right? Roman Dial. Yeah. Wrote a book about this. It was his efforts to find his son's body, identify the murderer. In the end, his son was killed by a tree that fell in a storm. So he solved a murder, but did not identify a killer. Put that in your pipe, Spencer Newhart. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that same unsatisfying feeling, though. Oh, yeah. No, I'm with you. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, <laughs> Spencer. Uh, no, you tell that to the Santa Fe New Mexican. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, Ben. Go on. It's found. It's it's found, uh, you know, by a shy guy back east. <laughs> He's shy. That's what they said. He was a shy guy back east. Um, Real wallflower, this guy. <laughs> um, it's in Wyoming. You know, people were just not people were not satisfied, and so the the suspicion and the skepticism, I would say, you know, increased. Um, people wanted to know more. They just and they weren't buying it. And a, a lot of people, including like some of the most focused, um, devoted, you know, sensible searchers, thought thought like Fenn had ended the hunt and and gotten the treasure, retrieved the treasure, or had a family member do it. And the 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 searcher again that you spend the time on Posey Justin yeah Justin Posey at first he's like depressed and kind of catatonic yeah but then instead of quitting searching instead of being like okay I'll move on to whatever the hell's next like uh, I'll get a dog and hang out at home he's like he resumes just searching for the spot where it had been. Right. Well, just as a which is insane. Well, as a side note, as a side note, I mean, he already had a dog, a a Visla. Oh no! Tell about the damn dog. I forgot about the dog. This is great. So one of one of his super methodical, you know, tactics that he used to kind of increase his chances of finding the treasure was he had a a Visla named uh, Tucker, fifty-five pound Visla, and he had read about how in the nineteen sixties in Russia and Finland. Uh, in Sweden, they had geologists had trained what were called ore dogs, who had an ability to s- to sniff out mineral deposits, you know, that are like buried forty feet deep. And so he began to wonder, well, what you know? We know the chest is made of bronze. We also know that searchers have gotten within five hundred or two hundred feet of the chest. You know, it would really suck if I got close to the chest, but not close enough. I could at least eliminate that possibility if I train Tucker to be able to smell bronze. So he trained Tucker to smell bronze. Burying dog treats next to bronze chunks of metal he <laughs> exactly. bought on Amazon. Correct. And then eventually just would bury the bronze and give the dog a treat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This fellow, this gentleman, was like, well, I'll just keep searching and just try to find a little hole. 
<laughs> where some other dude dragged a treasure out. I mean, he was not he was not alone. He was 10. not alone. An enormous number of people like I talked to would be like, you know, I'd be like, what are you going to do now that the search is over? And they'd be like, oh, I'm going, I'm going searching next week. What's that song? The search is over. <laughs> you were with me. <laughs> What's that song? No. You were with me. Oh. It was like Peter's Terror or something. <laughs> the search is over. You don't know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no. You were with me all. It's like the last thing he says. Oh. The search is... Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't know the song I'm talking about? Phil? I don't. Oh, God, no, I was, was going to say, it's like a sunk cost like fallacy type thing, right? Where it's just like, you've dedicated your whole life to this. It's like, well... I gotta keep going. Well, the same, I guess. <laughs> I mean, the same way that there were people who were like, "Yeah, my solve's correct," and the fact that the treasure's there, you know, not there means like it wasn't there or he took it. These people would say, "Well, um, there's you, you know, there might be like a second. There's a second treasure. Out. Like they they would have theories like there's a second treasure buried there, or the treasure the treasure uh, finder probably left part of the treasure there because that's what I would have done. So there was there were there were reasonings behind. Hold on con- a minute. <laughs> Is it Peter Starr? Hit it, Steve. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Steve. Dude, when they make this into a movie and Ben's like in the movie and shit, in the end they're going to have this song play. (laughs) <laughs> Survivor. We're keeping. So, what was that, Ben? You were saying about a second treasure? <laughs> <laughs> no, wait, hold on. So, I have a question. Out of all of the searchers who you interviewed, is there a common thread? Like, what's the typical psychological profile of these folks? I mean, the, the, there was actually a, a scholarly study done by a psychologist at the University of North Dakota really? of the Fen Chase community. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, he, I mean, you read the study, and it, which is available online, and it's like, you know, he's using all the psychological terminology, like normative, you know, personality and like mood disorder and da-da-da-da. Yeah. But, I mean, basically, it seemed like most of them were pretty normal, but there were 10% of the community who described themselves as having an addiction. And those are the people who are most active on the forums. Those are probably most of the people I talk to because the, they're the ones who kind of know about each other and you, you meet at these events. Huh. Get into. Uh, I'm trying to lead you gently where I want you to go here, Ben. Uh, the dude Posey wants to find the spot because if he can find the spot, he can pr- he can find what the solve was, or he can legitimize. Like if he could figure out what it was, then he could reverse engineer whether it was real or not. Right. Is that he, fair? He, he didn't doubt that it was real, but since for him the main goal was always like the the cracking of the puzzle and not the getting of the gold, like the fact that someone had found the gold didn't end the, the puzzle challenge for him. So he mm-hmm. thought he, he just still wanted to solve the puzzle and now he was even more motivated because it had been found. And he was, I mean, there was a concern that or, am I even going to know that I'm there if the chest has been removed, but maybe if I do it relatively soon, there'll still be, at least before this winter, you know, there'll still be evidence of where the tr- chest And he's got hit. photographs to go off now because the, the finder snapped a couple cell phone pictures of the box. Well, what happened is uh, 
So in September, someone calling himself the finder posts an article on a website called Medium saying, I'm the finder and telling the story about, but a pretty vague story, but about how they're the finder and how they've they spent 25 days once they knew the general area and that, you know, they were crying and getting torn by branches and they found the treasure. Um, and then they met with Forrest and all of this. But they're anonymous. Um, and normally it would be easy to dismiss them because tons of people throughout this whole thing have claimed, I found the treasure. Um, but in this case, they included photographs uh, – that had not been in, were, were not among the photographs Fenn had posted. So, but they were clearly outtakes from the same photo shoot. So it had to be someone who had some connection to the situation. Um, also, the Fenn family posted a link to this article on their website, which mm -hmm. gave it that validation. So people were like, "Okay, this is the finder." Okay. So then, a few weeks later, another searcher gets an email from someone who says, like, I know who the, fi the finder is and I know where the treasure was found. Um, and that finder gets Justin involved and together they, they go out looking for what is supposedly the real location where the treasure was found. And it was? And it was in Yellowstone. And the, the solve, according to this source, was that basically there were words in the poem that sound or look like numbers um, that were either, they were called like homophones or which was like sound alike words or kangaroo words where there would be like a number word within another word, like done includes the word one, yeah. right? And basically if you took all of these numbers that you could take out of the poem in sequence, um, they gave you latitude and longitude coordinates. And those coordinates were at a site in Yellowstone Park. Where at in Yellowstone? Uh, near to Issa Lake um, at the Continental Divide. Which is kind of a, like, uh, like looking at it, it's kind of a, like an auspicious sort of lake for clue given because it flows both ways. Or like it drains, sits on the Continental Divide, right? And somehow like drains one way and the other or something like that. It's apparently it's the only natural lake in the world that drains to two watersheds. Huh. It's right off 191, like right there. So he could have walked with an yep, old man could have yep, carried it right <laughs> from his car. Hmm. And this dude, Justin, um, starts trying to match up photographs. Right. I mean, what what he's really trying to do is verify the information that this source has provided, right? Yeah. Um, and the source has provided a few photographs. The source has provided the information of, you know, these words in the poem lead to these coordinates. And so he was trying to verify that what the source was saying and where the source had taken the photos were, you know, held up. But there was still a question about, like, is the source credible, right? Yeah. And the reason they were taking the source seriously was because it was like right after the treasure was found – Everyone, like, the, the, the kind of leaders of the forums were, were being inundated with, like, you know, I was the finder. Like, literally, like, more than 30 people said, I was the finder. Um, they were being inundated with, like, I know what the solve was. Like, th more than 300, these are, this is what the solve was. So they just ignored them all. And there was this one guy who sent an email that's, you know, and to Mike Cowlings, who ran, you know, one of the, the sites, um, saying, like, I know the finder, I know the solve. And he wrote back, cool, bro. And that was it. Okay. <laughs> but then in September, the guy writes him again. He says, like, next week there's going to be some news coming out. And then the next week, this Medium article comes out from The Finder 
And so he's like, oh, maybe that guy actually does know something. So then he started talking to him, and this 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 source basically said he had met the finder online. There had been a group of them who were discussing these sort of coordinate-based and homophone-based solves. Um, and apparently the source was, like, not very happy that now that he was not the finder. And he was like, so I'm just going to tell you everything I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what Justin Posey was going out there with these two other searchers, Cynthia Meacham and Christy Thor, to try to verify what the source had said. And what did they find? So they so they found – first they go out um, – and find nothing, okay? They go out to the what they think the GPS coordinates are, find nothing. They go back the next day. I mean, it gets kind of technical, but basically they, figure, they, they determine that if you wrapped – and I think they talked to the source again. If you start the poem at begin at where warm waters halt, you get the first of the coordinate numbers. And then you have to wrap around at the end of the poem to the beginning of the poem. And at the, so the numbers in the first stanza come last. And if you also use like what is apparently – standard decimal notation um, for coordinates, you get 0.2, um, which is 12 seconds. And they had previously been treating two as meaning two seconds. Oh. So 12 seconds put them exactly at a location that Justin Posey was able to his satisfaction to match up with the source photographs based on like the angles of leaning trees, the distance between trees, the height of the sun, things Leaf like litter. All of that, although obviously the more kind of the, the the stuff that deteriorates more quickly was less reliable than well, the Well, but there was a know? thing about there was three species represented on the ground. Right, right. It's fairly ubiquitous in the West, but still, there's like – he would – he was looking at overlays of these three species. Exactly. Like in the original photograph, there was like one deciduous leaf that they thought was an aspen. There were lodgepole pine needles. And yeah, yeah. There was one – a cottonwood twig, I think they thought. So yeah. he was looking for like the convergence of those three species. Which is a mighty big area, yeah. but still. Well, apparently, I mean, he said uh, – actually, it turns out that aspen forestation is not nearly as ubiquitous as you might think in Wyoming. I don't know. You might okay. know otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had somebody, Steve, in Mediator Instagram comments – that had commented on multiple posts, and they were like, my coworker solved it. It was my coworker that found it. So then I reached out to that guy, and I was like, who's your coworker? Like, why should I believe you? That kind of stuff. And he's like, wait, this is what he told me. Here, you can talk to him. Here's his info. Or no, it was the other way around. I said, well, here's my info. Have him contact me. So he contacted me, and he's like, yep, I'm the guy that found it. And I was like, okay. Uh, <laughs> like, how, can you prove it? Can you, like, show me a picture or something? that we can talk about this more. Um, and he's like, well, here's the deal. There was no treasure. And it was, it was one of those people, oh. uh, as, as Ben had said earlier. But he had, like, multiple days exchanging emails and texts and stuff. Uh, he was telling me he was the guy and that it was in Maybell, uh, Colorado. And, uh, and then he eventually, you know, told me, they're like, oh, there actually was no treasure. But I solved his clue and here are the reasons why and, and stuff like that. But huh. I was hot on the trail for a few days. I was like, I, I got it. Oh, that would have been cool. Uh, that would have been, been a little feather in your, like, <laughs> internet sleuth and cap. Yeah. So, Ben, how, how confident are you that, like, that's where it was? Yeah. Is it- I mean, I'm not, very, I'm not very confident. I mean, I guess the question is, I asked Justin Posey, how confident is he? Uh-huh. And he, I think, put his confidence at, like, 85%. Like, I think he thinks it is it. But there are reasons to, to doubt it. I mean, one, one thing that gave him confidence in it was they scooped up some dirt in a plastic bag at the site that the, the coordinates led them to and brought it back to the parking lot because they hadn't been able to bring Tucker the dog into the park. Um, and they let Tucker out of the, out of, out of the uh, truck and he runs around sniffing and then he gets to the pile of dirt 
and immediately sits down and his tail starts wagging, which apparently, and looks up for a treat, which was apparently the, you know, what happens when he finds bronze. And so they thought there might be like some sort of, you know, minute bronze residue in the dirt. How confident, I just thought of a good idea, man. You got to get the credit card records of everyone that Fenn knows to see where they were buying gas and see if they were buying gas up thereabouts when they went up to retrieve the box to end the search. I mean, he has, rel- he has relatives so- who are pilots also, though. Flight records. Huh. How confident are you? Uh, and, and as you, when you answer this, put in the input you have from people who are most obsessive about this, but who are rational individuals. How confident are you? Not that, not that there was a treasure and all that, okay? How confident are you that it was le- a legit find and that it wasn't a family deciding it's time to wrap it up? I will say until the latest development with this coordinate solve, I was actually, I was pretty sure the family must have made a decision to wrap it up. This has made me think probably there was a finder. It The the chances that you could find latitude and longitude coordinates in sequence in this poem that could lead you of all places on the planet out of billions of possible locations to a spot in the search area is very small. So that carries a certain amount of weight. I also think, you know, since this coordinate solve has been announced within the community, I mean, there's been a ton of skepticism, but people are still trying to match the the poem clues, like Home of Brown, Where Warm Waters Halt, to this location. And I think there's a good chance, like, none of that ever mattered. Yeah, I was going to ask if they, oh, all of those yeah. words were only to lead to get you to figure out the numbers or if those words also pertained to uh, to clues. I kind of think so, because even if you know these this location, like, there's no way the words could ever lead you to a price, precise place. And if you have the coordinates, you don't need vague words. So and what, you, need a bunch, think, you need a bunch of words that have numbers in them. You need a bunch of words that have numbers and in them. And then he also is a fan of the rhyme. So they got a rhyme. You got, they got a rhyme. Yep. Is it iambic pentameter? I remember learning that in school. I mean, that is a, a, a meter. I'm not sure if this <laughs> one is that. <laughs> I don't remember what it means. I just remember needing to learn it. I think Shakespeare used yeah, iambic pentameter. Yeah, bringing it back to Shakespeare. Yeah. Iambic pentameter. Yeah. You're not going to have an answer Search for this, Ben. Is over. But like, what will the person do with the treasure? How can they possibly use it as a treasure would be used to like get all these riches and not reveal too many things or like have? No. You got to go back Park east and look involved. for a dude with a lot of jewelry on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, would you? He's, he's also shy. Yeah. <laughs> Don't expect him to be making a lot of noise. We may have an answer in the Medium article posted by the you know capital letters the Finder. They said, "I'm a millennial and I have student loans and I cannot afford to keep the treasure." Mm. Um, my first attempt is going to be to have it end up in a place Forrest wanted it to, which people think was a museum, probably maybe the Buffalo Bill Museum in Cody. Um, but basically, they're going to try to sell it at auction. Um, where I think they can maximize the value not just of the actual objects, but of the whole story around it, the historical Yeah, it doesn't value. make any sense to liquidate it. Yeah, yeah. And then your guy that you spend most of your time with, your searcher that you spent, because you couldn't spend time with the finder because right. he doesn't want to be, has, right. he doesn't want to, he's too shy, um, too concerned about the whatever economic issues he's faced with now. 
uh, legal issues. The guy, one of the guys you spent time with, uh, was kicking around like how he might like to get it, but acknowledges that it's beyond probably going to be beyond his means because it's not yeah. even going to be sticker value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he thinks it'll be you know exponential or mul- a multiple. So you know, let's say instead of one million, it's ten million. It was worth a million bucks ten years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's also based on the you know fluctuating price of gold. So sure, and whatever, who knows? Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned in the end, you close by saying that this searcher chaser is thinking about assembling his own treasure and following in the footsteps of Forrest Fenn. That's right. He found a a meteorite, which he's confirmed as a meteorite. And apparently there's a lot of, there's a lot more where that came from. And so all of them together would be very valuable. And that's, that would be the basis of this treasure that he would hide and set up his own treasure hunt. Spencer's perking up over here. Spencer reached out, grabbed his mic, and just very slowly started. (laughs) I've had two instances where I thought maybe this is a meteorite, and it like the dollar value on those things is crazy. Uh, So if this person has a meteorite to hide, that's that's great. That's a valuable treasure. Ian Fraser did a piece about meteorites one time, or some aspect of it. He he was dealing with a meteorite that had that had. Come through a guy's roof in Montclair, New Jersey. Came through his roof and cracked his toilet. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that was happening. Just all of a sudden, yeah. bang, tink. And he goes upstairs like, what the hell is that? It was a meteorite. <laughs> so do you think we are going to ever have like the satisfying ending? Like the the murder solved, but we haven't identified the killer thing. Are we going to get all the details someday? I mean, I think the, the, you know, the combination of the, the source coming forward, if they are legitimate, has kind of taken away a lot of the, you know, the best part of the story that the finder has to tell. But I, I can't see why they wouldn't, um, especially if they're, if, if they're concerned about, you know, how much money they have. I mean, the easiest way in the world to make money would be for them to sell their story rights, right? I mean, to, to, they could probably publish a, a, a nice book about it. They could, you know, make a movie about it. Um, so I would, I would think that the finder would want to come forward at some point, especially if it's more than one person. And apparently it might be a team of a few people. Hmm. And that, that's also like one of the big red flags for people referring to the Forrest Fenn treasure thing, because he self-published the book. So he was getting all the proceeds from this treasure map hidden in the poem. And then there was a, a long stretch there where the books were selling for like $100 on Amazon and eBay, and it was like incredibly valuable. Um, and so mm. that's it's pretty damn good marketing to be yeah. like, here's this book I have, and within it, you can find the details to a million-dollar treasure that's hidden. I have to say one— Dude, that's a roundabout one, way to sell some books, maybe. <laughs> no, we should, the, we the, should try it. No, and, I mean, the one thing I'll say about that is actually the, he published three memoirs, and the first one— which was self-published and sold through this one bookstore in Santa Fe, Collected Works, they got all the profits. He didn't, mm. because he wanted people to know, like, I'm not profiting off this. I'm not sure if that's true of the later books, but that first one, he, he, he wasn't. And he was already wealthy. He was a wealthy guy. So right. I'm not sure he'd, he would do that. Right. Can you close by uh, talking about Forrest Fenn's death? Nothing suspicious, right? Nothing suspicious. I mean, and, you know, he, was, he turned 90 in August, and mm-hmm. then... Um, in early September, there was a 
kind of last gathering of the most devoted searchers in Yellowstone and at Fishing Bridge, in West Yellowstone and at Fishing Bridge. And uh, which you said has a sign that says you can't fish, which says no fishing allowed. Which is <laughs> um, and it was the Labor Day weekend. And then that Monday, uh, Fenn died of what the Santa Fe police said was natural causes. You know, there was some suspicion or Nine, people thought, he's 90 years he's old. He's 90 years old. He's 90 years old. Yeah. And his wife died uh, a few weeks later. His wife of 66 years, Peggy. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. that's mm. touching. Yeah. I like that, man. But he, like, held on and treasure If I died, found. I hope my wife dies, like, fast, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things I liked that Fenn said was someone was saying to him uh, that he should call the search off. And he said, if there's a pool and people drown in the pool, do you close the pool or do you teach people to swim? Right. And he had expressed, right, that, that he just wanted people to get away from their devices and shit and go do something and just be outside. If that was true, I wonder if, the, I, if it backfired because it's hard to tell if this lives more in the device internet. Like, did he create an internet thing or did he create a nature thing? If you had to look yeah. at it now. I think he did create a nature thing. Um, I mean, tons of people, uh, you know, went out on searches. You'd never, I mean, one of the people I interviewed was like a Boston cop who drove across country for three days with his son and spent a week camping in the Rockies, you know, which he, I mean, he'd never been to the Rockies. So I think, I think there were a lot of people like that. I think it did get people, but there was definitely a very robust, you know, bunch of armchair uh, treasure hunters who maybe never went to the Rockies. Never went And just spent a lot ground. of time, you know, talking on, in the forums. So how do people, uh, how do people find your article? Well, I think if you go to nymag.com, it'll be there on the front page. nymag.com. Yeah. If you're running into other problems, uh, Ben Wallace, type in Ben Wallace, Fenn. Benjamin Wallace, unless you want to get the Detroit Not Detroit Pistons. Oh, yeah. sorry. Benjamin Wallace. Uh, type in Benjamin Wallace, something like uh, Fenn, something ben like. Ben Treasure. New York Magazine. New York Magazine. Yeah, yeah. You'll, 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 you'll get there. Yeah. You'll get there. Uh, thank you for coming on. I'm glad I finally earned a slot on Meat Eater. Are you thinking about doing a book about this? You know, I, I actually, I would like to, and I, I um, emailed my agent about it, and he said there's already, like, a book that's been in the works for a while by a guy who was a uh, treasure hunter involved for years, and, you know, it's being published Aww. by a major publishing house. Oh, it is. Yeah, it Knopf. Is. Yeah. You're, you're a publisher. Random House. Sons of bitches. Yeah. I'll buy yours. <laughs> I like your copy better. All right. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Good being here. Are you going to write more stuff to come and talk to us about? I mean, it's hard to get uh, meat eater relevant <laughs> material into New York Magazine. I got to admit. Like, I don't think New York is where a lot of like hunting and fishing is happening. Yeah, but this has nothing to do with I hunting and fishing. It's true. I mean, I hope I will. I hope I will. Yeah. This may, what makes it relevant is what wasn't in there, which is Clovis points, which were used for hunting. That's a tenuous, that's a tenuous connection. And I had to twist Steve's arm to like talk about this. He's like, oh, Forrest fan. Uh, oh, did I never said such thing. <laughs> yeah. I wrote about Forrest fan when you still had your mama's milk hanging off your chin, man. I wrote about Forrest fan in 2008. But you were very cool on the idea of like 
having this be a thing on our website and like getting Ben more involved and having him on the podcast, you you were not very hot on this idea. It was my idea to have Ben on the podcast. After uh, I think after some text messages where I'm like, people are going to want to hear this. Oh, hmm. dude. Interesting I to hear that. I do not. I'd have to revisit <laughs> some of this. I could picture me being a little dismissive of the find. Spencer, but, he, he's, he's just holding a grudge because you proved him wrong about the squirrels. <laughs> uh, oh, no. No, he's, he doesn't think that's <laughs> no. the oh, thing. Oh, Phil, yet. you just no. opened it up. Because, dude, I have <laughs> – Spencer's coming back on very soon uh-huh. because I have developed an overwhelming body of evidence. <laughs> okay, we'll see. We'll see. To contradict Spencer's finding, including, including a book by the author, the same author who wrote Light in the Forest. Put that in your... To be continued. You got me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized job site or out in the field go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping go to decked.com slash meat eater get yourself some free shipping hey if you follow wildlife news at all you're probably aware that the island of maui has an incredible abundance of axis deer so much so that they're causing ecological damage well maui nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.